So it's probably not every day that a pastor says, hey, during the sermon you can text. But uh, we're starting something new here. Uh, and here's how it's going to work. If you have a question or something that pops up during the message today, if you would text to the number 77411 your question, uh, here's how you do that. First, you text the word, it's all one word, no space, ask Scott. All one word, ask Scott. And then what will happen is you'll receive a prompt and uh, then uh, you reply with your question and then you'll get a confirmation reply, you won't get an answer. <laughs> and then uh, all the submitted questions will get put into a hat and then Treg and I will look through those questions, figure out what ones we're going to take on in a podcast. So uh, you'll be able to see those episodes on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, you know, all of that. So I would encourage you to feel free to do that today. Uh, and uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens through the series in 2 Timothy as questions arise. I also want to add that those of you who are watching via live stream, this works for you too, so you don't have to be in the room in order to do this, but I uh, would encourage you to do that. Um, I saw a statistic uh, a oh, couple of years ago that indicated that 37% uh, of people are fact-checking a pastor during his sermon. <laughs> you know, you tell, a, you tell an illustration or give a statistic and people go, hmm, I wonder if that's right, you know. Um, I don't know what to make of that except to say that uh, uh, maybe that tells pastors they ought to be careful about uh, doing any exaggerating, right? Um, but it does say that we've arrived in a world where there's greater interaction in that uh, fashion and so we just want to give a little try and see what happens as we make our way through this uh, series in 2 Timothy. Uh, there was a um, last line of the song that we just sang about all my days, we want to give glory to God. And I think it's very interesting, isn't it, that when we think about that, uh, that we get to look at a letter here that is kind of the last words from the Apostle Paul. And this is a way for us to think about uh, the power of the gospel because every title of each of the sermons we're gonna be going through will have the word gospel in it. It's gospel words for gospel people. This morning we're gonna be thinking about fanning our gifts into flame for the sake of the gospel. I invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 7. And we'll be thinking about this in reference to making our homes a place of disciple making. Making our homes a place of disciple making. Now, in order to understand where we're going here, we need to have a little bit of history. Uh, Paul was in Rome as a prisoner, uh, as we get to the end of Acts, Acts chapter 28, he's there for two years with no official charges filed against him. It's during that imprisonment that he writes the prison epistles of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. Uh, our best understanding is that at about two years later, he was released. 
and he actually ended up going both east and west of Rome in his travels. He went east to Colossae, to Ephesus, to Macedonia, including Philippi. Uh, he wrote First Timothy during the time after he'd been released from that first imprisonment. Uh, he goes to Crete, he writes to Titus to come to him to winter at Nicopolis. And then around 63 or 64, he heads west to Spain, and then he ends up going back east again. He visits Miletus, where Trophimus was left ill. He visits Troas, leaving uh, his coat and some documents behind. And then uh, there's a possibility that we'll find out that he visited Corinth. Then he's arrested again, and he's in Rome, where he writes this letter of 2 Timothy in his second imprisonment in Rome. And there's some differences between the first imprisonment and the second imprisonment. In the first imprisonment, uh, that's where he wrote the prison epistles. The second imprisonment, the only thing he wrote was 2 Timothy. Uh, in the first imprisonment, he was accused by the Jews of undermining Rome in the second imprisonment, he's being persecuted by Rome and thought of as a criminal of the empire. Uh, in the first imprisonment, he has some pretty decent living conditions. He's actually under house arrest. In the second imprisonment, he's got bad living conditions, chains, and the cell he's in is cold. In the first imprisonment, he expected release. In the second imprisonment, he expects execution. Uh, in the first imprisonment, many friends visited him. In the second imprisonment, only Luke is with him. In the first imprisonment, he had many opportunities for witness. In the second imprisonment, there are not so many opportunities. So this should set the uh, background for our study of this letter, I invite you now to stand for the reading of God's word, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. And those of you who are watching via live stream would encourage you to open the scriptures and to stand with us as we look into the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Please have a seat. Let's look at the first two verses, which quite often when you're reading an epistle, you kind of just skip over the little introduction, don't you? 
But here we're going to just see in kind of a summary fashion the value of mentoring and discipleship. The value of mentoring and discipleship. Paul is described as an apostle, which means he's a sent one, sent by God. And it's not Paul's idea, it's by the will of God. And by the way, while not, none of us are apostles, right? None of us are in that special office of being sent by God as an apostle. Every believer is captive to God's calling on their life. Sometimes that leads us in obvious directions according to our interests, but sometimes God's calling leads us in not so obvious directions. Both the surprising ways in which God directs us as well as the unsurprising ways in which God directs us are in the hands of a sovereign God. And if you look at the biography, the life story of nearly every believer, you will see this. Where life takes turns in expected ways, but life also takes its turns in unexpected ways. Uh, that's what happened for Paul. His life took some turns in some very expected ways, but also in some very unexpected ways. This one, this apostle, is sent according to the standard of an amazing blessing, the promise of the life. This is, of course, eternal life. As Paul faces death here in this second imprisonment, he's gonna be thinking about the stuff that really matters. When you go to die, it has a way of sharpening your focus, doesn't it? And the eternal life that we have in Jesus is among the most important. You know, we live in a time when even Christians will sometimes poo-poo, dis disparage the notion of eternal life that we have in Jesus. But may I remind you that there is no hope in the Christian life apart from it. Just this week, I saw a thread from some Facebook friends of mine uh, talking about the value of racial justice rather than the value, and they contrasted it, rather than the value of eternal life and saying the Christian message isn't about eternal life, it's about racial justice. And I'm like, no, as important as racial justice may be, as important as it may be to you in your situation, it does not compare in any way to the glory of eternal life forever with Jesus Christ. Does not compare. We live in a time when Christians can sometimes disparage that. This life, it can indeed be lived to the full. Jesus said that in John 10, 10, right? He said, I came that you might have life and have it to the full, but only in the context of the eternal life that is promised us in Christ. The promise of the life has a way of making smaller our sufferings. What treasure of confidence or hope can we give to Stan Bauer? 
what can we give him? The assured promise of eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the, that's the joy and hope and confidence we have. The promise of the life has a way of making smaller our sufferings, of diminishing our hopelessness about evil. Oh, we live in an evil age, don't we? It seems like it's getting increasingly evil. And we can, we can write our diatribes and publish them on social media all we want. And I'm sure that when we write them all, that fixes it, right? <laughs> no, it doesn't. In fact, in many ways, it only fans the flames of even more debate and controversy and, and, and uh, anger and all of that. No, it's the hope of eternal life that diminishes our hopelessness about evil. There's coming a day when all evil will be set aside and put away. The promise of the life enlarges our understanding of what really matters. So as Paul is writing to his uh, mentee, the person he has mentored and discipled, he's, he's going to begin with this. It's the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. It's nowhere else. Jesus is the Savior, Christ is the King. Now let's look at verse 2, where we are introduced to Timothy. Described as my beloved child, it's a bond of relationship, the bond of a father to a son, the bond of the more mature one to the less mature one. Uh, he's beloved. This is not just an exchange of information relationship. You know, sometimes we regard discipleship as, I know some stuff you don't know, I'm going to take it out of my head and dump it into yours and call that discipleship. That's not discipleship. What you have here isn't just the exchange of information, it is the sharing of life together, a relationship of love, of cherished feeling, of commitment. Now, Timothy was a much younger colleague of Paul's who had become his frequent traveling companion and close friend. As uh, Gordon Fee notes, Timothy was from Lystra uh, in the province of Galatia. Paul probably met him for the first time in Paul's first missionary journey. And it's very likely that he and his mother and grandmother became Christians at that time. During Paul's second visit to that area, on the recommendation of local believers, Paul decided to take Timothy along on his travels. Thus, a lifelong relationship of mutual affection began. Paul calls Timothy in various letters, his beloved and faithful son in the Lord, his fellow worker in the gospel. As his son in the faith, he became Paul's most intimate and enduring companion who followed him closely. He shared his point of view he could even share Paul's ways to churches. Indeed, uh, Paul entrusted Timothy on various journeys on assignments to various churches. He had sent him to Thessalonica, to Corinth, and to Philippi in order to accomplish things that Paul wanted accomplished in those churches. He also collaborated on six of Paul's letters and in... <clears throat> In these uh, uh, assignment, this time, he left him with a very difficult one. Paul had left Timothy in Ephesus 
in order to stop some false teachers there who were in the process of undoing the church as a viable Christian alternative. Now, Timothy's often pictured as a very young man, somewhat sickly, full of timidity and lacking in personal forcefulness. That could probably be uh, in some ways exaggerated. Uh, We need to be careful that we don't over-exaggerate it. His youthfulness, probably many was over 30. Uh, Sometimes we think of him as a teenager. and it seems that uh, he, by going on these various journeys, assignments for Paul, he wasn't totally lacking in courage, but these exhortations that we will see here in Second Timothy to loyalty and steadfastness are probably due to his relative youth and to the strength of the opposition that Timothy is facing. Continuing on in verse 2, grace, mercy, and peace. That's a prayer for blessing. Grace, God's kindness to the guilty and undeserving. Mercy, God's deliberate movement toward the wretched who cannot save themselves. And God's peace, God's reconciliation with those who have been alienated from him and from one another. And that grace, mercy, and peace comes from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. There's the unity of the Godhead here. So that's the value of mentoring and discipleship. Let's think next in verses three to five about the treasure of a connected life. When I say the word connected, it means that we don't just live life in compartments, but actually there's an integration of everything in our lives with our relationship with God and relationship with others. It's when we disconnect that we run into trouble. Uh, Some of you probably note that from time to time there are people in ministry who get into moral problems. I have yet to see a case where that happens where it's not also true that that person has in some way or other disconnected him or herself from the life of the body. They have disconnected. So here, in these three verses, Paul's going to talk about the treasure of a connected life. It begins first with connection to God. Verse 3, I thank God whom I serve. It's connected to the past, as did my ancestors, and it's connected to Timothy, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Let's kind of break this down. Paul says, I thank God whom I serve. The word serve is nothing less than worship. That's what it means in the Bible. Serving and worship go together. They bring significance to our lives. And note that Paul understands the importance of a legacy of faith even in his own life. Paul saw that the Christian faith that was his was in continuity with his Jewish faith. Only now, he knows who the Messiah is. He knows that it's Jesus. What did Paul's ancestors do? What did his parents or his grandparents do? This word ancestors is only used twice in the New Testament, and the, other, the only other time where it's used is in 1 Timothy 5.4, where it means living parents. So, 
I suggest that it's not talking about somebody that lived hundreds of years ago, but Paul is talking rather about people who were in his life. Now, what did Paul's parents do? If they were good Jews, what did they do? Well, according to Psalm 55, 17, evening, morning, and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. There's three times a day for prayer. Daniel did that in Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. You remember when he was told not to do, make any petition except to the king? When Daniel knew the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. This afternoon prayer of these three times in the day is mentioned quite often in the New Testament. Luke chapter one, verse 10, the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Uh, Acts 3, one, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, that's that afternoon hour of prayer. Uh, when uh, Cornelius meets the Lord, Acts chapter 10, verse three, about the ninth hour of the day, he, Cornelius, saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come into him and say, Cornelius. Acts 10, verse 30, Cornelius said, four days ago about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour and a man stood before me in bright clothing. What, what, what's going on here? Well, I'm gonna suggest to you that from fairly ancient times, and certainly in Paul's time, from his point of view of his parents and grandparents, there had been established a very clear pattern of praying three times a day, morning and afternoon and evening. And in fact, uh, later Jews put this into a list of 18 prayers called the Amidah. And how much that relates to Paul's era, we don't know. But I'm going to submit to you that it had, at least in some rudimentary form, already been established by the time of Paul and his ancestors. And so when Paul says, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors, he's recognizing that he's part of a legacy of faith. In verse four, he says, I remember your tears. Timothy felt the loss of parting from Paul when he did. And also describing the joyful thought of reunion. I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I want you to think about this for a moment just by way of application. In this bond of relationship that Paul had with Timothy, he's, he's connected to God, he's connected to his past, he's connected to Timothy. Uh, just a, one way of applying this, write down the name of one friend who has encouraged your hunger for God. Just take a moment to write down the name of one friend that has encouraged your hunger for God. It will help you see that you are not disconnected, but you're connected to others who have helped you in your faith in Christ. Now in verse five, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, Paul says to Timothy. So in verse three, he talked about his connection to the past, now he's gonna talk about Timothy's connection to the past. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and in your mother, Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. 
Lois and Eunice, Jewish converts at Lystra. And Paul says, and I'm assured that that same faith abides in you too. Listen, if we're going to obey Jesus' command to make disciples of the nations, we need to begin first by transforming our homes into disciple-making centers in which followers of Christ are sent into the world with the real gospel of Christ. I can tell you I have a concern these days as I see Christianity waning in succeeding generations. Every generation seems to have less of a zeal for Christ. I'm concerned that the reason for that is that we are becoming more interested in safety and in affluence than we are in serving Christ as our King. I'm concerned that we may find ourselves more concerned about protecting our children than we are in launching our children for Christ to serve Him. I'm concerned that we may not be modeling a life of surrender to Christ in our families, but rather we are modeling a life of managing our faith rather than risking it all in our faith. The fact of the matter is, none of us would have to search very far back into any of our salvation stories and find that someone, just a few generations back, someone gave their life so that you could be saved. Are we going to be the generation that says, we will continue the Great Commission as long as we can stay comfortable doing it? (laughs) These are challenging words, aren't they? Now, everybody longs for significance. Everybody. But that longing for significance can find no better home than in the service of Jesus Christ. You know, I uh, watched with fascination the highlights of last night's football game between Kansas City and Miami, played in what, 23 below wind chill. And how these guys gave their all for a very hardened oval piece of leather. They, they, they gave their all for a hardened oval piece of leather. Now, they find significance in that. That's not bad. It is not wrong to find significance in our efforts and in striving as hard as we can to accomplish a goal. I just want to lay before you, brothers and sisters, that we have an adventure that far outweighs any other adventure in the world. (laughs) The proclamation of the kingdom of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ and taking it to the ends of the earth. We cannot find any better home for the longing that we have for significance than in the service of Jesus Christ. If you desire 
significance for yourself and for your children and for generations yet to come, I invite you to look into the heart of the Apostle Paul here in this letter. So let me give you two applications here. First, you should write down the name of one family member who helped start your hunger for God. Write down the name of a family member. It might have been just their bad example, I don't know. (laughs) But write down the name of one family member who helped start your hunger for God. Because everybody has a family history. Paul had his. His, he, He had ancestors. Perhaps he's just talking about his parents there. Timothy had a grandmother and a mother. Write down the name of a family member who's who helped start your hunger for God. Here's a second application. The greatest missionary of his age and his primary protege, we're talking about Paul and Timothy, were transformed by their homes that they grew up in. How are you preparing your children and your grandchildren to be champions for Christ? You shape your children by what you commend in them. Paul commends Timothy for his sincere faith, not for his good grades. He commends Timothy for his sincere faith, not his athletic achievements. He commends Timothy for his sincere faith, not his popularity or his income or his good looks or his fine standing in the community. What you commend, you are shaping. What are you doing this year as a family in worshiping, in praying, in remembering who Jesus is and what he has done? And by the way, you may think, you may have the excuse, well, my spouse is not as excited about this stuff as I am. Don't be discouraged by that. Lois and Eunice are mentioned here, but there's no Mr. Lois and Mr. Eunice mentioned, are there? They kept pressing on. You should too. What do you think about when you think about blessing for your children or your grandchildren? Do you think, well, keep them safe from harm, God. Help them to be able to go to good schools and get good paying jobs. Help them to enjoy the pastimes of music and entertainment and sports. And above all, help them to stay near me so that I can enjoy my family time with them. It seems that our ambitions are too small. Now let's look at verses 6 and 7. Fan into flame the gift of God. Fan into flame the gift of God. God's gifts need cultivating. We must not presume upon God's gifts. God grants gifts to every believer, but they can lie dormant or nearly extinguished if purposeful attention is not paid to fanning them into flame. Use the gift that God has given you. 1 Corinthians 12, 11, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. The Spirit of God has done that. And notice that Timothy's gift was given to Paul by means of a laying on of hands. It's not the physical act that did that, 
but the apostolic authority that's in view here. Perhaps this connects with 1 Timothy 4.14 and the ordination of Timothy to ministry. Now, Timothy was relatively young. He had some health problems. We'll talk about his stomach issues. He was apparently had some issues with being fearful, uh, certainly shy, uh, a person for whom it's very possible that responsibility felt a bigger burden to him than to the average bear. And yet, Paul tells Timothy to fan into flame the gift of God. You see, fear is what causes the air to go out on your gifts. Being fearful of something, saying, well, I can't do that because. Giving yourself an excuse for not risking it all for Christ. You know, when we lived in Bolivia, we lived at 11,000 feet elevation. And for most of history, the city of La Paz did not even have a fire department. You know why? Because there's no air up there for fires to grow. Now, they ended up having a fire department, which actually, when I saw them in action once an electrical fire, I thought, yeah, we could probably do without one. Um, but the fact is, there's so little air, you can't get fires going very well. In fact, in order to have a fire in our fireplace, we had this electrical thing that was a blower fan that would turbocharge air, right? It would blow air into the fireplace so that you could get a fire. When, when Paul talks about fanning into flame the gift of God, he's saying you need to get the oxygen fuel to your gifts. If you don't, the flame dies out. Fan into flame the gift of God. Now, what is it that adds air to our gifts? What is it that does that? Very simple. Using them. Using them. Using our gifts fans it into flame. If you let it atrophy, guess what? It dies down. Too many Christian families want their children to be believers, but not that intense about it. <laughs> Can I let you know something? You cannot control the fire of God. You can't say, well, I want it to be this strong, but not too strong. You can't control the fire of God. You either fan it or you extinguish it. You do not control it. What are you afraid of for your child or your grandchild? Are you afraid that they'll become a missionary and live far away from you in an unsafe place and perhaps die in the cause of Christ? Are you perhaps fearful that they will run away from God and not share your faith? Or that they will not marry a nice person that they will not have nice kids, that they will not live in a nice place near you. Uh, a little over nine years ago, Dave Noden gave a sermon here at East White Oak where he quoted George Otis. 
And here's what Otis said. Our fears over what might happen has led to missionary detour and evangelistic paralysis. The primary question is not, is the field ripe? But the question we face today is, is it safe? That's worth saying again, isn't it? Our fears over what might happen has led to missionary detour and evangelistic paralysis. The primary question that we're asking is not, is the field ripe, but is it safe? Dear brothers and sisters, only one thing matters. Open your heart wide, fan into flame the gift of God. And once we get fear out of our lives, our fear of what God will do, our fear of what others may do, we will find a wonderful, wonderful place of joy. It's a place of power. We realize who's on the throne. It is a place of love. We realize how much we are loved and how much we love. And it is a place of self-control. In a world that lives by its appetites, we learn that the control of those appetites brings great blessing. And that's what verse 7 is about. God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Now this verse is an abused verse. It's one of those in the Bible that gets quoted and quite often abused. It's been used to justify all sorts of things, including going confidently into foolishness. But let's see it in context. God gave us a spirit, not of fear. The spirit is for us. He's longing for the church to glorify God. It's plural. There's something that the Spirit of God wants to do for the church of God. Now, God gave you a gift individually, but he's longing for it to be used for the building up of the church. And the spirit of power suggests that we should be confident of God's enabling. You know, when we look at things, we can sometimes feel, I can't do that. No, you can't. <laughs> you can't. But the Spirit of God is a Spirit of power. He enables us. A Spirit of love, the use of that enabling to serve God and others, and a Spirit of self control. The Holy Spirit is what enables us to have victory over the sin that can so easily entangle us. You might say, I see the word there is the little s spirit. That's certainly a possible translation. I just think that whenever we look at the New Testament, we see the word spirit there, there's always a hint of the capital S spirit. So just give a little consideration to that. So while I've asked you to write down the name of a friend, write down the name of a family member, now application, write down one fear that troubles you. Write down a fear that troubles you. And beside it, write the nature of the spirit of God that answers that fear. There's always going to be either his power or his love or his enabling of self-control that will help you overcome the fears you're encountering. Oh, dear ones, we should show our children and our grandchildren a life of prayer. We should not doubt the goodness of God for our best or for our family. 
Jesus himself said in Mark chapter 10, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. What Jesus is saying there is don't doubt the goodness of God. When you go all in for Christ, it's going to go well. He promises that. Now there's going to be persecutions, but when it comes to all of eternity, you will never say, ah, I sacrificed too much. But rather you will say, praise God. Praise God, my life counted for something that truly mattered. Don't doubt the goodness of God for your best for eternity or for your children or grandchildren. If we're going to obey Jesus' command to make disciples of the nations, we need to transform our homes into disciple-making centers in which followers of Christ are sent into the world with the real gospel of Christ. Let us not be more interested in safety or in affluence than we are in serving Christ as our King. Let us not be more interested in protecting our children than we are in launching our children to serve Christ. Let us be sure that we model a life of surrender to Christ in our families, just as Paul suggests that he had family members who were servants of the living God, and he tells Timothy, look upon the faith of your mother and your grandmother. Let us not be the generation that says we will continue the Great Commission as long as we can stay comfortable doing it. Let us rather be the generation that says the softness stops here. It stops now with my family. As for me and my children and my grandchildren, let us all say we will serve the Lord wherever he calls us, whenever he calls us to make disciples of all the nations. Would you pray with me? Now, Heavenly Father, we recognize that these are challenging words, but when we think about Timothy's life, we recognize that there's a person who had some timidity, who's far away from home, away from his mother and his grandmother, in a situation where he's experiencing some challenges. This reminds us of our own lives and our own world, and so, Lord, I pray that you'd help us first to reflect on those family members in our past who have helped to introduce us to Christ. Let us remember the, the friends who have helped us in drawing us near to the Savior and help us, Lord, to identify the fears that we have and see that you're the answer. You are the answer to every fear we possess. Now, Lord, we recognize that there may be even some in the sound of my voice today who've never put their faith in Jesus. Help them to join this grand adventure 
to put their faith in Jesus, to forgive them of their sin, to believe that he died on the cross to pay for our sin and he rose from the dead to give us the life, the eternal life that will last forever. And Lord, help us all to give our all for the sake of Christ and for his kingdom and for his glory. We would seek to be worshipers. Rooted in scripture, growing in Christ, making disciples. In Jesus' name, amen.